Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show, a Bitcoin philosophy show with Knut Svanholm and me, Luke the Pseudofin. Our guest today is Ben DeWall, VP of Engineering at Swan Bitcoin and long-term Bitcoiner with some unique views in the space. In this episode, we'll explore the definitions of libertarian socialism, capitalism, and anarcho-communism, and we'll navigate the difficulties in defining those terms. From the concept of the free market to property rights and the non-aggression principle, this episode is packed with interesting topics. We even touch on big issues like national defense, immigration, and explore alternative models of society. As always, stick around to the end for plenty of book recommendations. But before we dive into all that, a reminder, the best way you can support the show is to stream us some sats or send us a boost on a value-for-value podcasting app like Fountain. If you get value from the show, consider sending us some value back. Each week, we'll thank the top boosts with a shout-out in the show. This week, we don't have any boosts, but we did get a Noster Zap from Viking Ralphie for 90,000 sats. Thanks so much, Ralphie. He's involved in the development of sats.place, Satoshi House Ardenberg, and Bitcoin Walk Arnhem. So check those out, especially if you're in the Netherlands. We connected over on Orange Pill app, so you can look us up there if you want. Speaking of Orange Pill app, we also want to thank the sponsors of today's show, Orange Pill app and Wasabi Wallet. You can find information about them in the show notes, and we'll talk more about them a little later. We'll also mention that the show is produced by Consensus Network, the first Bitcoin-only publishing house and hub for Bitcoin content like this show. And now, let's dive into the episode. Hello and welcome to the Freedom Footprint Show. We're concerned about your freedom footprint and want to help you spread as much freedom dioxide as possible. I'm your host, Luke Lesudo Finn, and I'm here as always with Knut Svartholm. Good afternoon, Knut. Good afternoon, Luke. So today we have Ben DeWall, who, and I'm gonna, we're gonna just read from his Twitter bio here quickly because I think it's a, a fantastically interesting way to, to bring him onto the show here. So VP Engineering at Swan Bitcoin. Father, polymath, linguist, technologist, neuropharmacologist, philosopher, humanist, libertarian socialist slash anarchist. So I think we've got a lot to talk about. And of course, we, we hit it off great with, uh, with Ben when we met in person. So uh, let's welcome Ben onto yeah, the show. Yeah, so welcome, Ben. Thank you. It's good to be here with you. Good to see you again. I remember last time, uh, last time we saw each other, we were sitting at table number 21 at the uh, Riga Airport. Yeah, yeah, we had a quick coffee there, but uh, but my flight left pretty early on, and we had some great conversations there about the libertarian socialist thing. That's a funny word to, to many, I believe. So, so what what is libertarian socialism? If we start there, that might be a good starting point. Yeah. So, um, libertarian socialism is the perspective that humanity works best under a system whereby everyone has the most possible freedom. So that's essentially the libertarian part of libertarian socialism. Um, and that 
the best way to have maximal possible freedom for everyone is um, in a system where you are responsible for earning your uh, own money. You own the fruits of your own labor rather than somebody else having, rather than somebody else owning it, which is traditionally viewed as capitalism. Now, this is where we get into disagreements a lot. I get into disagreements a lot with people about definitions of words and I'm really wanting to avoid that today in our discussion um, because semantics get, become problematic at times. Um, and uh, where I say I'm a libertarian socialist, essentially I'm saying that um, I want to own the fruits of my labor and not have a boss own the fruits of my labor. As in, if I work, uh, I don't want the boss to be owning what I have produced. I want me to own what I have produced. All right. Yeah. And we're it's easy to get into the semantics trap here and semantics are important. Uh, I'm writing a book on praxeology at the moment, so, uh, I'm trying to avoid all those traps while at the same time, trying to make it, you know, accessible to people, because I, I think the, the semantics of praxeology are part of what's hindering people from deep diving into that rabbit hole, because the, these great thinkers are very German in their way of expressing themselves. So the sentences are long and filled with big words in order to not fall in, into any argumentary traps or, uh, <laughs> and such. So, so it, it's a daunting task, but, uh, we'll, we'll see where that ends up anyway, uh, before we deep dive into this libertarian socialism idea, a little more about yourself. You're, you're from New Zealand, right? Yeah, so I'm originally from New Zealand. I uh, grew up there for the first 10 years of my life, uh, then spent uh, close to two years in the Kingdom of Tonga, my little Pacific Island group. Uh, went back to New Zealand to finish my high schooling and since then traveled around quite a lot. I lived in Australia for a while, I lived in the Netherlands for a while, uh, then I back to Australia and uh, now I'm in Germany. I've been here for I guess somewhere around 15, close to 16 years now. So, uh, wasn't planning on settling down here, but, uh, met the lover of my life, had two kids. So ended up getting kind of trapped here. <laughs> as, as one does. Yeah. And you're working for, for Swan at the moment. Is that right? Uh, yeah. As the, uh, vice president of engineering. So my background professionally is in, um, software development. I, you know, spent a lot of time writing code, um, then I kind of realized that I'm more interested in software architecture than I am in actually writing code. You know, I care more about how the pieces fit together than what the code itself looks like. Uh, became a system architect for a while at the company I was working for, and that just kind of naturally led into management roles. And I discovered actually I'm pretty good at organizing people as well. So, you know, figuring out how, um, how to organize people it looks very much like figuring out how to organize large components of code from my perspective there. Yeah. They have specific inputs, they have specific outputs, and you just need to put them all together in the right kind of way to achieve a result. So it's how I ended up in management and yeah, vice president of engineering is one. Is that the polymath, uh, polymath part of your bio? Yeah. The polymath part of my bio is that I team. So, um, uh, I was diagnosed with uh, Asperger's syndrome when I was quite young. So, uh, type of autism. And, um, one of the things about Asperger's syndrome is having passionate interests about things for a certain amount of time, and then just kind of losing it and moving on to something else. And, uh, there's a few, which I've kept, um, uh, like software design, like linguistics and like Bitcoin, 
Um, but I've gone through a lot of things. I've studied a huge amount of different things. Um, I actually have qualifications in the most ridiculous list of things you can imagine. Um, actually, for example, I'm a qualified and licensed private investigator in the state of New South Wales, Australia. Um, yeah, that's just one of the ridiculous things that I've done in my life. So you're basically Craig Wright, but for real. <laughs> that's a disturbing way to put it. Has anyone asked you if you're a Satoshi? So I could, I could, I could then definitely not Satoshi, but I did make a list once of, uh, you know, reasons I could be Satoshi versus reasons I might not be Satoshi. And actually the, I could be list is longer. And one of them is that I claim to not be Satoshi, just like Satoshi probably would. So yeah, I'm not getting myself out of that trap. Is that on the opposite side of, of Craig's list then? Craig's list. That's another pun there for you. To the fact that it's to be using point against him. <laughs> All right. Where were we? Yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, stumbled upon a video, an NHS video <laughs> the other day uh, about autism because I was curious. And there were a couple of aut autists, uh, people diagnosed with autism who described what their reality was like. Uh, and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> take all the boxes. Like, Having a brain that feels like a volcano, just spitting out ideas all over the place all the time. And also, you know, talking to other people and being, you know, extremely frustrated with them not getting to the point, <laughs> especially normies, of course, like, and all sorts of stuff that I, I ticked all the boxes. So I, I, I have no diagnosis, but I'm pretty sure that if they had been diagnosing kids when I grew up, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I would tick off some of the boxes. Um, anyway, where were we with the libertarian socialism? So, so how does that, what does that look like in practice? Like, are you, so you're allowed to keep the fruits of your labor. You're allowed to do what you want, but you're not allowed to have a boss. Uh, how does, how do you square that? So essentially, um. Probably the best place to start would be to say that libertarian socialism is a very old and well-established um, group of concepts, but it isn't a single thing. So um, yeah, if you just, yeah, I hate using Wikipedia as an example, but it's just an easy place to point to. If you look at the libertarian socialism page or Wikipedia, you'll see that it links off to a whole lot of other things like uh, anarcho-communism, for example. I'm not an anarcho-communist. Because communists generally are against the idea of money. And I think money is a very useful thing. I think free markets are one of the best way to establish the actual value of things between people. So that makes me not an anarcho-communist. Um, but uh, I still fall under libertarian socialist, probably more specifically in the um, subcategory, which you call a free market anarchist. Um, anyway, this is where we get into the difference. Okay, so free market anarchism, what does that actually mean? And why is that different to anarcho-capitalism? Yeah, and that's, that's the question most people get asked. Yeah, and why, why, why shoehorn the word socialism in there at all? Right, because um, essentially the definition of socialism as I like to, as, as, as pretty much always been used throughout history, is that the means of production, distribution, and exchange are owned by the people as a whole, as a collective, rather than being owned by individuals. Now, what that means more concretely is that things like um, you know, uh, the um, ownership of a piece of land, the ownership of a city, the ownership of the air that you're breathing, 
the ownership of the commons um, shouldn't be held by individuals. And I would say a socialist perspective is that if somebody claims to own that, you say, no, you don't. All right. So, so you consider some social contracts to be invalid or some contracts to be invalid. Yes. Um, con contracts which make a claim to ownership of something which I would say cannot reasonably be owned. And that includes a lot of legal fictions. So um, good examples of legal fictions are things like intellectual property. Yeah, yeah, but but sort of all libertarians are against intellectual property, or almost all. Like that, that's a very... Almost all? But how about this one then? The idea of a company being a separate thing to the people that make it up. So from a libertarian socialist perspective, a group of people can get together and work together towards some kind of common goal, and they can all, you know, collectively earn the fruits of the labor of that collection. However, the moment you start saying, this is a company, which is a separate thing, and it has legal rights, it has some kind of, um, you know, uh, maybe limited liability, all of these legal fiction concepts, that's where libertarian socialists go, no, that, that doesn't exist. You're making something up here. And even worse, from a libertarian socialist viewpoint, you're making something up here, which from our perspective requires a government. Why the hell are you doing this? Get rid of the government. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm finding it hard to square because like, uh, the, uh, a company requires, uh, or a corporation requires an, uh, entrepreneur who is also a capitalist and who is also willing to risk his capital in order to start the business. Right. And you define capitalist in this context. A capitalist is just someone who saves for saves something for later use or, or, and in this sense, to be an entrepreneur is to put that capital at risk. So it could be just, you know, saving apples and giving a portion of them away in order to, you know, use the seeds to grow more apple trees. So, but, but, but to me, capitalism, the, the word it, it talk about misused words, like capitalism is just what happens when, uh, it, it's just saving basically it's, it's saving something for the future. Yeah. By that definition, I am a capitalist. So we don't disagree there. We simply disagree on the meaning of the word capitalism, because to me, capitalism is the control of a society by those who have capital. Oh, well, that's not the praxeological definition though. It's not to be the definition which has been used. Like for, for example, um, yeah. To put this, to say it in advance, I am not a Marxist. I think Marx said a lot of things he got horribly wrong. But in his book, Das Kapital, his description of capitalism, um, what capitalism is, is roughly the description that I would also agree with. So, yeah, I disagree with his solutions towards things, but I tend to agree with his definitions of things. Okay, I, I think my definition is more Misesian uh, than Marxian, because I think Mises was a way better thinker than Marx to begin with. So, so I, I, I'd rather use him as a starting point here. It's, it's, it, here it's also, uh, important to make the distinction in, uh, what free market competition is because praxeology makes a difference between catalactic competition and biological competition and catalactic competition is competition of the good kind where there's no violence or a threat thereof involved whatsoever. So that benefits everyone because you're just competing with goods and biological competition on the other hand, or on the contrary is competing with bads basically.
uh, so you, you're uh, th there's a loser uh, in in biological competition and same thing the the idea of might makes right yeah yeah you know, I I can beat you up therefore I get to take all of your stuff that's yeah the, uh, yeah yeah and and in catalytic competition there might be a loser but uh, the the person wouldn't have entered the trade if he or she didn't think it was beneficial to them. So it's all voluntary and all consensual. Uh, and it's, it's to distinguish between these two, because the line gets blurred as soon as you uh, add an interventionist component to the free market, uh, which has always existed, by the way. So the, there's never been a, a, an absolutely free market. There's always been some sort of interventionism. Yeah, just as there has never been. That is a really interesting point because um, libertarian socialists, such as myself, would generally argue that capitalism, and again, using the word differently here, but capitalism, the way that we use the term, is intervention into a free market. And therefore, you cannot have truly free market under capitalism. What way, where you want to have free markets without this intervention that capitalism produces? Yeah, and I totally agree there if you use the word capitalist in the Marxian sense, but I wouldn't touch that with the 10 foot pole or with the 21 foot pole for that matter. Uh, <laughs> so, so I prefer the, uh, the Misesian definition, which is basically just someone who saves capital, like, and capitalism is the result of saving for the future and letting catalactic competition do its thing. Do we, do, do we maybe need to, to agree to pull the terms out of here just for just for a moment so that, that maybe the capitalism That's what, now is a, a dirty word for this discussion? Be, it's not helpful to, to be okay. looking at different, uh, different terms here. Yeah. Um, so what would we say instead? Because it's, it's a bit like saying Bitcoin maximalist. Uh, it's a derogatory term, uh, you know, invented by the other side, and then it gets... Uh, Bitcoin maxis like us take it to heart and it becomes something else. But when Marx uses the term capitalist, he uses it as a derog derogatory term. Uh, it, to, to be fair though, that the exact same thing happens with the term socialist. Yeah. So many people use the term social. Yeah, somebody who wants to steal your money through taxes via a large government and then redistribute it to everyone. Yeah. People will. If, if I say I'm a libertarian socialist, there are people who, of course, say that to me. I'll say, oh, you want to you have a large government who steals all of my money and then redistributes it amongst everyone in order to try and you know, help the lower classes or whatever. No, no, not at all. I, I have zero association with that description. All right. Yeah, that, that, that's good to know because it, it, it takes me back to our conversation at the airport when, when you told me it's basically you don't think contracts that puts the the employee into a state of voluntary enslavement as valid yeah so what what that basically means is like a monthly salary or an hourly salary that that won't cut it you need a share of whatever the the the, the product is so so uh contracts should be should all be what, what consensus network is like, uh, the, uh, starfish, starfish model where everyone gets a cut and, and gets to reap some of the fruits of their labor, uh, in accordance with what the, the contract states. Is, is that a fair description? 
Uh, I think that's a fair description. Yeah. So, um, yeah, an important difference, quite simply, is that, uh, you know, in the, um, I'm paid a particular salary or particular wage or whatever. You know, if I work harder, if I produce more, I don't necessarily get it. My boss does. And maybe in order to keep me, he will then start paying me more because, you know, but that's his choice. And that's the way that, you know, he gets to control things. First, it's my boss who is the one who gets to make everything. And that's what it, I view as inherently unfair and a um, unnecessary and a, a problematic hierarchical structure. Essentially, in that kind of structure, things can grow to the point that you end up with you know, what I think we would all agree is bad crony capitalism, where you essentially have um, these ultimately powerful um, corporations who act like governments in many ways. And that largely comes from their ability to um, you know, have this first say over things. They get to say, hey, I decide whether or not I'm giving my employees a raise or um, Often people talk about competition being the way to solve that. You know, the, a competitor will come along who treats their employees better and you know, that will work. But actually it generally doesn't because the structures we have um, uh, in this society allow for these larger companies to push out all of their smaller competition. They they can crowd out and stop the competition from growing. But don't you think that has more to do with them, you know, coming into a monopoly position, which uh, th there's another word to define monopoly, uh, th wh where they can lobby politicians to to uh, uh, make le legislation in, in their favor and also be, being closer to the monetary spigot, get cheaper loans and so on, so forth. Isn't that where the real problem is here? So I, I would say to an extent that makes it far worse, but I don't think that's the root cause. I think the root cause is simply if you have more, it costs you less and is easier to produce than somebody who has less. So yeah, those who have a huge amount uh, will have an economic advantage in production over those who have less. Okay. Uh I love this when I get to play the devil's advocate at all points, because that's, that's how you make a good conversation, especially if it's two guys like us, like the, that agree on like 99.8% of everything. So the, I would say, and the, the, having taken a deep dive into praxeology lately, uh, what, what the employee accepting the terms of a monthly, uh, month by month basis salary or a hour by hour based salary, uh, they're, they, they are getting something out of that, uh, that the entrepreneur hasn't, and that is, uh, certainty, which allow them, uh, allows them to, to, to more easily do economic calculation because the reason that the capitalist, uh, the entrepreneur, which is by, def by definition, also a capitalist, the reason that he can make so much more profits is that he traded away uncertainty uh, and took on risk. And so, so what you're doing when you're accepting the terms of a wage slave contract, it's you're basically trading away your uh, uh, trading away uncertainty for certainty, or at least certainty until that is until the whole company goes bankrupt, of course. Uh, where there's no certainty and you, you can argue that certainty is, uh, an illusion, but that that's the thing of value that is so hard to measure in monetary terms because you can't, but, but, but it's still something that 
that the employee trades away. Uh, you see where I'm getting at here? I, I, I do see where you're getting at, but I would, I would argue as a counter to that, um, there's two, two, you're kind of slightly wrong on both sides of it. So from the entrepreneur's perspective, um, under the, under the systems that we have, whether you want to call it capitalism or not, under the systems we have, if you create a company, often you don't take on as much risk because you've got things like limited liability companies. So you create this limited liability company to protect yourself against a lot of the risk. Oh, but ha hang on here, because limited liability, that has something to do with legis legislation and the fiat clown world we're living in, right? A, a, a company that would actually suffer the consequences of its own actions would not be <laughs> held accountable in a limited way in that sense. So we both disagree, or we both, sorry, sorry, we both agree that limited liability companies are a bad, bad concept. They, they distort the, um, they distort the outcomes in a negative way. Yeah. But let me give you an example. Um, I start a company and, uh, you're my employee. We make whatever, uh, cupcakes, uh, and. Uh, in, instead of giving you a, a contract that says you have this, um, many percent of the, the, uh, this percentage of the revenue goes to you or, or the profit goes to you, not the revenue, the profit, uh, the, what, what, what could be better for both you and me, uh, of which I think it's not up to me to decide whether it's better or not. It's up to the employer and the employee, the two people signing the contract is that instead of giving you a percentage of the profits, I agree to give you a monthly salary, which makes calculation easier for me, the entrepreneur, because I know in beforehand how much, uh, how uh, my expenses, uh, over the next couple of months. So I can make a, uh, you know, uh, I can think in terms of accounting more easily and make better economic decisions. Therefore and grow the company faster and make, you know, better, cheaper products for everyone. So everyone benefits. And also for you, the employee, you trade away uncertainty for uh, stability. And, you know, by doing so, I also make your life easier because you know exactly how much you have each month. So you know how much you can save up and you know how much you, you could you could engage, I mean, everyone is an entrepreneur, everyone is a worker, everyone is a capitalist, everyone is a consumer. It's just that we fulfill all these roles. It's just that we do it at different times and it depends on like, it's subjective what you view as entrepreneurship as well. Everything's subjective, but the, the point being that the only thing that distorts this, you know, enhanced ability to make economic calculations over time is that the money is distorted and taxes change all the time. So you don't really have this stability, but that's to me, that's all because of governments and fiat bullshit. And it's not because of the structure itself, because it, I, I find it very reasonable to, to, you know, uh, say to an employee, <laughs> at least give them the choice. You could either have this, uh, percentage of the profit. Or you could have a monthly salary, which would make life easier for both of us, because I'm the one that has to make the decision. Someone still has to be the CEO and make the decisions for the company, right? 
I'm going to disagree that it necessarily makes the accounting easier because I think you can do percentage-based accounting actually much easier. And I'd like to see, you know, I, I understand what, what's important to sort of think about here is I'm not saying um, that you could leave all of society the way it is and then start doing things like, you know, um, just have a company whereby all of the employees get a certain percentage share of their profits. Yeah, because the way that society is currently built that doesn't necessarily work because we still have all of these other things around it. I, I guess an important thing to talk about here is um, I'm not advocating a particular form of society. I'm advocating um, improvements to the way that we do things and what the end society ends up looking like. I have no idea. Uh, and I think this is an important um, anarchistic kind of concept here. Um, I think anybody who says the perfect society looks like X is going to fall into some kind of authoritarian trap as they try to make society look like that. Yeah, uh, I would say they would even fall into an argumentative trap. Uh, the, have you have you heard about Hoppe's argumentation ethics? It's one yes. of the greatest things I've stumbled upon lately. It's it's so good that it, you, you any argument against you know absolute property rights is bound to uh, or run into self-contradiction at at some point because you have to by by engaging in argument at all you have to uh, accept that the 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 person you're arguing with has the same rights as you if you want the argument itself to lead to an outcome if if <laughs> regardless of what that outcome is you have to accept that you're on equal terms what do you think of the episode so far let us know what you think in the comments and now, a quick word about our sponsors. First up is the Orange Pill app. Download the Orange Pill app today from theorangepillapp.com. Yeah, Orange Pill app. Woo! Rocket ship, get on board. It's available for iOS and Android. Stack friends and meet like-minded people near you. Connect with your favorite Bitcoiners and speed up hyper-Bitcoinization. We're really excited about the Orange Pill app and its potential to connect Bitcoiners in their local area. Download the Orange Pill app. It's not a dating app but you can use it for dating. Download now. Next up is Wasabi Wallet. It's a great desktop wallet that has privacy by default and CoinJoin built in. It recycles your UTXOs around so that no one knows who you are after it's done the process. Check out wasabiwallet.io. Make sure that that's the actual link you check out because there are scammers out there who want to steal your Bitcoin. But it works in the background. Tor is built in. And when you send coins to it, the coins you take out are private. So download Wasabi Wallet today. I'm wearing these shades in tribute to Wasabi Wallet because your OPSEC is important. So I'm totally anonymous now, just so you know. Property rights is a really interesting thing because I think that's probably a place that we do disagree a little bit um, in that I completely agree with that um, Hopper view there. Um, you know, uh, but what I consider to be property might differ. Um, you know, if I own um, a piece of land, which is halfway around the world where I am now, in what way do I own that land other than stating that I do and other people agreeing in some way through, usually through government and governmental force, that uh, that piece of land belongs to me. What I really own is more or less what I control. Do I control that piece of land? Not really. But here we, uh, here we go into semantics again and to the, um, uh, here we're into Rothbard territory and uh, homesteading. 
So like the, the, the first let's make the distinction between possession and ownership. So possession, possession is actually controlling something and ownership is just a legal framework on top of that. So, so if you own a piece of land, uh, halfway around the globe, you're not in possession of it because you're not there personally to defend it and put a fence around it or whatever, but other people can mess with it. The, the, the tricky part is when that gets into some type of legis legislation and the, you, you have the legal ownership of something that is very far away from you, like the, say the Falkland islands in the UK or whatever. Uh, and there's a, there's definitely a problem there. And I think it can tie, it, we, we can tie that problem to, uh, law being centralized over time and not just being the village, the village elders deciding on what the proper cause is. All societal problems stem from two people arguing over who owns what there's, there's nothing, there's nothing else that causes problems really. So it all, which is why it all boils down to property rights and the homesteadings. So yeah, it's a tricky one. Uh, but I guess the. The, the, the first homesteaders and whoever acquired it over time by, by, by trade, uh, have the, the, the rights to that land, land, labor, and, and time are really the three pillars of, of ownership, uh, like of, of, uh, means that you can use for certain ends. Like the, uh, you have to be able to own land uh, in order to do anything like we, we cannot we cannot take up the same physical space. The, 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 this is an argument that both Hop and Rothbard makes a lot. Like if you imagine you're in heaven, so you have absolute abundance, you can have whatever you want, but you still run into a property problem because you cannot take up the same space as another person. So, so there has to yeah. be some ownership of land, right? And so, uh, yes and no, sorry. That to me, isn't necessarily ownership of land, that's ownership of position. And uh, this is actually an argument I use a lot. So sorry to kind of slightly jump off to a slightly different topic. It's an argument I use a lot against when uh, people are talking about the non-aggression. I think the non-aggression principle is a beautiful idea that is completely and utterly useless when you try to implement it in reality. Because everyone is going to disagree about what aggression is. And therefore, you won't actually have a uh, coherent um, agreement between people as to what actions are allowed or not allowed. And the perfect example being position. You know, I am sitting on this chair. I am removing by doing that. I am removing your ability to sit on this chair. You could view that as an aggressive act. Should I therefore not sit on this chair? It's it's a absolutely ridiculous argument. And that's kind of the point. Um, yeah. Have you read The Ethics of Liberty by, by Mario Rothbard? Uh, a long time ago, so I can't say I'm, it's a constant inspiration in my head. I, I really recommend rereading that because like he's, he's the one that, yeah, he lays it out perfectly how, how to, dis like, it's always, whenever, whenever you make it up to someone else than the person making the claim. This is sort of like, uh, we can go into atheism and uh, define that word as well. Like, like the, the burden of proof is on the one making the claim, not the one refuting it. As, uh, Christopher Hitchens said, it's a, it's a bit the, the same 
the, the same moral ethics apply to property as well. So if, if I claim to own that chair that you're sitting on, it's up to me to, you know, either forcefully take it from you, uh, or to convince some type of, of jury or some type of, uh, you know, non-aggressive, um, legal, whatever organization to, to, uh, to make you leave your share or, or to make that decision for me. But doesn't that just then fall back to Mike Max, right? Doesn't that just fall back to whoever has the most force behind them? Is that controlled as they will? In a sense, in, in a sense it does. But the thing with collectivizing you, the, um, law in general and making like, uh, a, um, a king, the lawmaker or a, uh, even worse, democratically chose elected leaders, law, arguably even worse, democratically elected lawmaker, uh, politicians, the lawmakers, that, that effectually turns them into an elite class that is not, uh, you, you know, you can't negotiate with because yeah, even the, is, yeah, right. yeah. So, yeah. so, so, yeah, so, we're, so we're totally all the, same. The, the law of the jungle is the thing here. And that's what we're trying to get away from. And the, the, the libertarian argument, it's, it's not like libertarians, uh, or as I, I, I prefer the term consensualist. It's not like we're trying to say that we will end up in some utopian society where there's no aggression at all. It's not that it's just that the vectors have to move towards absolute property rights, because that's where that's the starting point of everything. Uh, and. And, and anything that says something else than that is a, a move away from absolute property rights, which always leads to centralization of power and biological competition being the thing instead of catalytic competition. I'm not sure that's true, that anything that adds on top is necessarily moving away from it. So, because like I said, I would agree on absolute property rights. I would disagree on what we might call property. Well, okay, let's define that word. I, I say property is a relationship between a, a person and the means he chooses to, to reach certain ends. And it's a relationship that, you know, uh, you, you can consider something your property if either if you homesteaded it or if you acquired it by trade, by trading with someone else. So homesteading between is just finding something in nature. I found this stick. This is mine. Uh, and it's basically just an extension of the notion that you're in possession of your own body. Therefore you own your own body. Uh, so it's, it's very hard to, to argue against without falling into contradiction. To keep it simple, let's say I find a stick. That stick is now mine. I use the stick for something. I don't know. I dig a hole with it or something like that. And yep. then I put the stick down. And I leave it and somebody else finds that stick. Yeah. Stick is it, is it my stick or is it their stick? Well, uh, to them, it's their stick and to you, it's your stick. And it's up to you to resolve that conflict with the least amount of violence possible. That's, that's the optimal outcome, but, but here, this is the conflict. And as soon as you involve a third party that is not agreed upon by you two, like you could involve a third party, but the best 
scenario there if is if you agreed on who that third party was. So like, oh, you found the stick, I found the stick, we're in disagreement. Then we need to talk and find a third person that can resolve our dispute. Uh, because that's the only option we have. If we if we can't agree in an argument with one another, then the only other option we have is to find a uh, n as neutral as possible third party to to uh, resolve the conflict for us. But as soon as the, that third party isn't chosen by the two conflicting parties, but uh, by someone else uh, in a you know societal hierarchy that came to be because of mostly biological competition and not catalactic, uh, th that is by definition corrupt. And especially like, so I stole your stick, the, the government arrests me and throws me in jail. And you have to pay pay for my time in jail, so that's obviously a bad outcome for both of us. Agreed. Yes, I don't believe that you can ever come to a society. Uh, it's very hard, at least, to come to a society where where, where this is the norm, where two disputing parties choose a, a neutral third observer in agreement with one another. It's very utopian. But every like that's how I view mor morality myself and my my own ethics is I, I want to move in that direction if i was ever in in some sort of juridical conflict with with someone about whatever i would rather use the service like dispute uh, io uh they uh, uh, some guys we met in prague that have this you know voluntarist um, um law firm <laughs> where you can hire someone without without having to you know, cling on to the old system and pour a lot of money into institutions that are extremely corrupt as it is. You know, uh, my friend Hodlonot and his battle with Craig Wright is, is is a great example of how how corrupt the whole system is because it's it, it's costing him not only a lot of money but a lot of time. Of course, it's time consuming to to fight someone that you didn't really pick a fight with. Uh, and the, the the problem I have with the law as it is is that it it forces innocent victims to pay for things that they ha had nothing to do with, and th this is the problem with tax taxation and governments in general is that we all pay for all sorts of bullshit that we ha we never agreed we never signed a contract that I agree to this it's it's just enforced upon us. We're, we're completely on the same page there. Um, I, I cannot agree more that, yeah, the current systems and so on are extremely problematic in that regard. And in the way that, uh, you know, they, we have these governments, which you know, we didn't agree to as individuals. We never said, Hey, we want to have this kind of system. And the system essentially steals our time and our work and our effort. You know, I, I think it's extremely wrong. Um, where I would disagree with you, though, is the solution to that. I think the, uh, you know, it is far too utopian to say, okay, let's just go to a third party and have some kind of, you know, remediation from a neutral third party. It's, um, and not, not, I'm not saying that that this is the solution, by the way. Yeah. So, so you, yeah, but, but, but uh, I, I, I'm with you. I think but, we're um, on the same page here also, but I, I let's find out. Big, no, um, libertarian socialist viewpoint would be we agree on all of what the issue is. 
But the solution, rather than saying, you know, let's have neutral third party or whatever, it's far more realistic to say, let's see what the local society um, finds with regards to that. So essentially a form of um, extremely small scale direct democracy, but only very small scale. But that's that's it. That's what I'm. That's what I mean by going in that direction. Because of course you can't get to two people and one third party. But it'll be like a village or like a, a smaller kingdom. Where we're so I think we're all both aligned there. Like we we want global trade, but we don't want global. <laughs> we want go, global competition for goods, but not for bads. Yeah, and I, I really think uh, yeah, large scale politics can be an emergent property of. Um, massive amounts of small-scale politics. So politics in this context simply being agreements between people. And you can have large-scale action becoming an emergent property on the small-scale agreements between people. So you know, these group of villagers have their own you know, ways of handling things and you know, they're going to agree on quite a lot. They might disagree on a few other things, but where they agree, you know, there's more or less a now larger area where one set of rules is the norm is uh, what you expect to happen in that particular grouping. Hmm. Like th this uh, reminds me of when Sweden applied to join the EU. Uh, and uh, I, I, I voted yes for that back in the day, which I wouldn't have done now seeing where it ended up because the, the original idea was, was fine. Like let's open these borders and and not fight each other anymore, which is a very, uh, it's the coal and steel union in the beginning of this after the war that, uh, and it grew larger into the European union. Uh, but the thing is that the horrible thing that happened is that that centralized power into Brussels. Uh, yeah. so, and opening these, the borders were the problem in the first place and they were put there by people who got into power by having some ancestors being really mean to some other ancestors of ours and the, the structures are the way they are. But this is why I think free trade agreement is such an oxymoron because like if there's free trade, you don't need an agreement. Like it's the agreement is only to, you know, uh, it's uh, how you, uh, your own, your own, when there's a government, you're only free to do one thing, and that is obey. And you're only free to, uh, you know, in, in to what extent this governing body allows you to be free. And it's the same thing with this. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And I would, I would take a step further. I would say, you know, rather than just saying, um, you know, a free trade agreement is oxymoronic, because yes, it is. Um, I'd be asking, who is the agreement between? The agreement is generally between you know, governmental bodies and not the people who are actually the ones performing. Training. No, so, exactly. Yeah. So it's an agreement between two uh, slave owners, basically, allow, yeah. to allow their slaves uh, a certain amount of voluntary interactions. <laughs> so an, an interesting thing about borders, you know, I, I live very, very near the Czech and Polish border here in Germany at the market type. I, I used to live a bit around the west, but uh, yeah, moved here a few years back. Um, so, you know, the town I live in shares far more in common with a small Czech village just across the border than it does with many 
beside the French border, for example. But for some reason, the town that I'm in and that town just beside the French border are both part of this concept called German. Um, and to me, that's, that's absolutely ridiculous. That, that's something which just shouldn't exist. The, the idea of borders themselves, I find um, inhuman. Yes, and I, I absolutely agree. And when you travel a lot and when you have these, this lens to view the world through, you, you see how ridiculous they are. Like these are just some assholes that put, put up, that hinder, hinder us from, from doing good things. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and now that we've established that all the disagreements mostly were differences in terminology, can I maybe come in and uh, play the devil's advocate to a certain extent, but also queue up a couple of scenarios that I think will be interesting to explore both sides of this viewpoint. Okay. So first, I, I'm thinking of two issues that are usually listed as difficult to do under some form of libertarianism and its defense and immigration. The I, roads. The, well, the roads, I mean, let's, let's not go there at all, but uh, defense, to start with that one, is kind of this concept that if you have a big entity with a lot of power, the might makes right type thing that you said there, Ben, how do smaller entities or entities that have decided to cooperate on a smaller scale actually deal with that issue? And I want to hear from, from both of you, but maybe Ben. Uh, I, I, I don't get the question. Like you said, immigration and... Those are the two scenarios that I would be interested in exploring, and, and maybe defense is one thing. How does how does a smaller scale a community that has developed under these principles that you're both talking about actually defend itself if some larger entity says it wants to come attack, uh, which we're seeing an example of in the modern day with Russia versus Ukraine, regardless of the politics or anything else going on there? Yep. How does that work for, for both of you? Maybe Ben can you yourself. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, I, I think the question is difficult to answer because it depends on what the world looks like at the time. Um, you know, is there such a large entity? You know, in the, you know, the perfect libertarian socialist ideal, there, there wouldn't be these large entities who were capable of doing that because everyone is already in these small groups. Um, however, obviously, that's not the real world. We have these large centralized entities at the moment. And uh, you know, if some small area decided hey, we're going to try and be a libertarian socialist society. For example, Rojava, uh, northeastern Syria, that's a libertarian socialist society right now. Um, and, you know, if they are attacked by, let's say, Turkey or Syria or any of the other places immediately around them, they have to figure out, okay, how do we do this? You know, we, we've got all of our small local areas who are essentially self-governing and we've got agreements between the areas. Um, how do we defend it? And right now, all of the areas have a mutual defense agreement. So you know, they agree with each other on enough things to say that um, they will collectively work together to provide defense for each other, um, because by defending each other, it helps defend themselves as well. Um, and I think that's something which, yeah, it's an open question. I don't think there is necessarily an answer. If um, all of Western Europe suddenly decides, hey, we're going to you know, organize ourselves in this way with small individual groups. You know, what happens if Russia starts rolling tanks over the borders, from Russia's perspective, into us? You know, what do we do about it? Um, and I really think that yeah, it would be a collective 
a defense concept. So, you know, the people who agree with each other, would it be agreeing with the other towns nearby? Hey, if Russia does this, this is how we're going to react. Yeah, nice answer. I, I'd like to flesh out what, what I think about the problems themselves first and like what the problems really are. In terms of immigration, you're talking about uh, a lot of people moving from one country to another. Can I actually frame that one then? Because I, because I think that one I, I'm thinking of a little bit differently from the defense thing. So I want to bring in a South Park reference to illustrate it, actually. So the perfect episode of South Park, I, it's my favorite, is the Goobax episode from, I can't remember which season, but basically you had these- They did good Exactly. They do good jobs. They have people coming in from the future, time traveling, basically, because they can uh, get very little money in the past and then it goes into the future and it's worth a ton of money, which is hilarious and would need Bitcoin to work in, in hindsight, yeah. which, is, which is just absolutely funny. But uh, so maybe it would work in the, in the future and all that. But no, the, the, the idea is that they, they are coming in and taking all the low paying jobs and, and this sort of thing. And the, the, the people in South Park end up having to go have a gay orgy so that they prevent, uh, humanity from, uh, proceeding into the future to keep the, the, the jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, but, and before the gay orgy, they try to have some sort of rainbow in society and they decide that that even's even more gay than the, the pile of men. Right. So, so the, the whole thing is, uh, is hilarious, but the, the point that they come to right at the end there is that there are good places that people are going to want to migrate to. And if the entire world is able to migrate into the good places, those places will become less good. And this has been an issue that I've, that I've basically struggled with since then, because, because you have things like the, the refugee crisis in Europe where there is, is a large wave of immigration and i i've seen lots of problems with waves of immigration as opposed to someone with a skill coming into a certain area bringing their their skill and coming for a job or something like that so this is another thing that i'm not sure how it gets solved under a system like this okay <laughs> there are so many good points here luke to to address F first of all the uh protectionist view that you can somehow shield yourself from other people demanding less money than you do for performing a certain task it, it's 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 wrong from the be from beginning to end because there's some uh, there's something called the ricardian law uh uh which states that if a country or a person for that in for that matter is better at, than someone else or, or somewhere else at doing absolutely everything, they're still better off producing the thing they do best and letting the other country or the other person produce what they produce best. And this is sort of counterintuitive. And this is why protectionist policies get so much uh, like, oh, we have, they took our jobs and what, why that sort of viewpoint gets political points, but, but it's not solving anything. It's better for America Keep, keep doing what America does best and let some, some cheap labor Asian country do what they do best. Because the total outcome of products, of goods and services in the end will be higher if we do, because that's how the division of labor works. And so, so say for instance, uh, America and Brazil are uh, growing oranges and apples. 
And Brazil turns to be better at growing both oranges and apples. So if uh, America can, <laughs> oh, I, I'm just struggling to find the, the right numbers here, but say that Brazil can produce, um, uh, 10 oranges per time unit and five apples per time unit. And America can produce three oranges, uh, uh, three apples per, per time unit and uh, one orange per time unit. The, the, the total output will be higher if Brazil produces what they're best at and stops producing apples altogether and America produces the apples. The, the, the net outcome is better and cheaper for everyone. So that, that's, that's the first thing there. Uh, and then to, to address the other things, like in terms of defense, uh, before we go into, uh, voluntary or, pr or private defense, uh, let's first look at what's wrong with, uh, tax funded defense systems. And this is an example that Max Hillebrand gave me, uh, and it's about Israel and, and Palestine. So Israel have, has a ton, ton of money. And they have this complex drone system that shoots down projectiles, uh, a robotic defense system that, that, that shoots whatever comes through their airspace to the other side from Palestine. And it costs them like half a million bucks every time they do. But then Palestine has, they, they shoot like rocks through, uh, through iron tubes that they found on some scrapyard somewhere with an explosive in the bottom and they shoot a stone to the other side and they trigger this extremely expensive defense system every time they do because they fire at everything. So, so the, the problem that isn't solved by, by tax funds, funded defense is how much defense, what, what's, what's the correct amount. And usually since we have, <laughs> you know, the, Give me an argument for why, why the military budget should be higher in any country at all. Like it's always too much, uh, because you can always spend too much when you're spending other people's money. So too much is, is, uh, too much goes to defense and too much goes to the military everywhere. And that's the problem with, with tax funded, uh, monopoly of power, it grows like a cancer and it. And it's pretty, pretty horrid, uh, in terms of immigration, like if there were only pro private property, this wouldn't be a problem at all because you decide who to let in or not on your, on your own property. And that might sound harsh, uh, but the reality is like, if we had absolute property rights, everyone would be richer and it would be much more, much easier to be altruistic than it is now. We never see the alternative because we're living in a world in, in a world where, uh, where there aren't no absolute property rights anywhere. So, so we're, we're only seeing what tax funded stuff can do. And we, we, we never see what a unhampered, uh, global free market, how, how positive of a force that could be. So the, so we don't see what could have been because of this. And there's so much to be said about that and how the uh, free market can grow exponentially, like tax funded stuff never can because they like the, the example I gave in the other episode with the apple farmer who can afford one tree the first year, two trees the other year, and then four and then eight and so on. 
if he's allowed to keep all of his profits. But if you take 50% of the of it away, it never gets to the second tree. So the business can never grow and this stifles the entire economy and you get the Soviet Union. So my 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 big the, the big point I want to make here is that Bitcoin fixes this. <laughs> because it fixes all of these issues, literally. Uh because it removes the the profit incentive from from violent uh, from aggressive behavior to some extent because what the the i don't remember which book it is from but what in my, one of my books is the passage that says uh the um when you cannot know how much another person owns and you cannot take it by force very easily it it becomes much easier it, the better way to get something of value back is to provide something of value to them. So, so it 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 moves the the what's it's called the the shelling point of, of violence. So, so that it it becomes cheaper to be nice and more expensive to be not so nice, uh, which in turn solves all of these other problems. Like, and with a protectionist thing, it's connected to to the immigration thing as well because if there weren't protected protectionist policies, these, these other low-income countries would be allowed to grow and flourish. That's like Hong Kong or Taiwan or South Korea, where exactly that happened. They opened up the markets and there, there was cheap labor there. And now you wouldn't view any of those countries as, you know, a developing country by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, so so the, the way to, to, to lift people and people in other countries out of poverty is to it's just leave people to their own business and to leave people alone as much as possible and as little interventionism as possible. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, Ben. So, yeah, um, I would agree with very largely with almost everything you said there, but I would have actually taken a different approach to the question of immigration. So talking about immigration, um, I think the problem is that the way that that question is phrased implies countries. Yeah, it implies exactly. kind of, um, yeah, some kind of place that people are immigrating to or immigrating from. But realistically speaking, it's just people moving to another location because there might be better opportunities there in terms of the work that's available or the resources that they can take advantage of or whatever. Um, one of my favorite authors, um, as far as modern anarchist thinkers go is David Graeber. Um, he wrote this really excellent book, uh, Get the First 5,000 Years. Um, so essentially it's a, you know, 5,000 year history of money, which is kind of interesting and yeah, it's a huge book, but, um, probably more relevant to this topic is another one he wrote called bullshit jobs. Um, and it's essentially about busy work, you know, as society contains a lot of bullshit jobs. And when we talk about immigrants coming in and doing the cheaper jobs because nobody else wants them or whatever, it's largely because we have built up all of this, these admin positions and government jobs where you know, people are basically just shuffling paper around and moving things from one place to another. And it's, those are bullshit jobs. They don't provide any actual value to society. They don't do anything useful. And that tends to be one of the driving forces which makes these other lesser jobs lesser in that way. So, you know, the people who are immigrating to do these lesser jobs are doing it because these bullshit jobs exist. Um, get rid of those and you've solved 98% of the problem. You know, the people coming in, be providing useful 
value to the society. Downloading the book now. I have to read that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And bullshit jobs are everywhere. Like most jobs are bullshit jobs. Like everything that has to do with, with the finance world is really a bullshit job. Anything that has to do with converting one currency to another, or even, you know, just, just this bullshit day-to-day -day trading stuff. It's, that's a bullshit job. It's not providing anything of value to anyone. Uh, and I think that like the financial sector, uh, all of their so-called services, they're all, you know, a part of the fiat legacy. And of course they have a lot of backing behind them and a lot of, uh, just like the, the cryptocurrencies, so-called the cryptocurrencies that they, they have a, a t they each have a team of advertisers advertising for their cause, but it, they're, they're just as useless, uh, on a Bitcoin standard, uh, which is, yeah, this is what we're looking forward to, isn't it, Ben? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the more we can get rid of unnecessary work, then the more work is performed, which actually produces value and the more value production, the better it is for humanity. Like, um, was in, in my intro there, you know, I am a humanist. That's one of the things in that ridiculously long Twitter bio. The thing that I care about is human well-being you know, the more human well-being there is the better it is from my perspective and you know that's it's an ungrounded thing but i think that's a worthy cause from my perspective so and you know, that's my ultimate goal yeah uh but who's to say what that is if not the consumer or if not the individual human being oh it, it is absolutely the individual you know um i can't determine what your well-being is only you can determine that yeah, I want to increase so we're, that you, whatever that means to you. Yeah. But so what you're basically saying is, uh, uh, that, that is a proponent of, to me, that is the same thing as being a, a proponent of the free market and property rights. Which I, yeah, which I mentioned, you know, I am, I am a proponent of free markets. I am a proponent of property rights. Yeah. Yeah. As laid out. I think, uh, I appreciate the, the answers there. And the reason I wanted to bring up both of those issues was because they're so frequently cited as reasons why you need the state and why you need some kind of mechanism of control that really transcends the, what the individual or the small scale units can do. And if I'm restating a couple of these things here, taking the taxes and the power of taxes out of it really takes the ability for the government to both provide a defense budget and to provide the mechanisms for to or to be the arbiter of of who is allowed to to come into a country or not you take that power away basically and if there was no welfare state for example the, the essentially there'd be no incentive for people to come on spec essentially to another part of the world they have they would they have no nothing lined up to uh, to do their no means of providing for themselves, well, then they can't come because the government, if a government isn't going to be giving them those things. And similarly for defense, I still wonder about the game theory on that there, how we get to a world where you don't have these massive defense budgets for the reasons of, uh, deterrence and all that. But I, but I still get your, your points essentially that, uh, if we do get to a world where, well, the Bitcoin fixes this, uh, like we all hope, uh, 
yeah, that, that, that's the path to that world because every time we use nothing but Bitcoin for, for our goods and services, we not only, you know, remove ourselves from that uh, equation, but we also defund them in the long run. Like we're nowhere near that point at this moment, but, but we're slowly but surely defunding the parasites, as I see it. Like, and those, those that can spend without cost, because the problem is always the ability to spend without personal cost. When, when you can do that, the, the, the resources will be misallocated. So like giving, giving all the tax funds to a newly elected political leader is a bit like, like allowing that political leader to win the lottery. And lottery winners are, aren't usually, you know, long to profit the, three generations down there, th that wealth is gone for sure. It's probably gone within a couple of years. So yeah. Giving a teenager the keys to a fast sh sports car with no consequences if they crash it. Yeah. It, it's basically the same thing. H hiring an arsonist to, to, to run the fire brigade. So actually, I, I just have to be, uh, to be slightly controversial and you know, bring up another socialist point, the withering away of the state. Um, you know, that was a, a concept, um, in socialism in the very early days, uh, you know, uh, Marx and Engels working together described the withering away of the state, um, where essentially their idea was wrong, but their idea was let's build a new state that then enables the people to um, you know, self-organized and so on, so that the state becomes useless and it withers away. Their problem, the very first step, the create a new state part, um, you know, that's, that's what went wrong totally and why the USSR was such an incredible shithole and it became this authoritarian, ridiculously overpowered state, um, and so on. But the idea of the withering away of the state is great. The idea is that the people can self-organize and make the state irrelevant. But the best way to do that is not to create a new state that somehow allows that because they're not going to. The best way to do it is to, for the people to self-organize on their own and create systems like Bitcoin that make the state unable to exercise power. So you can have the withering away of the state without building a new state to do it. Here, oh, the, the, my disagreement here is a funny one because it's like, I hate the term systems like Bitcoin. Because I think Bitcoin is that system and trying to introduce anything else like direct democracy or whatever, uh, is, is bound to fail. Like, because like, if we truly want the people to, to thrive through their own free will and by cooperating with one another, the only thing that hinders that is that we don't have a political money, but now we do. So that's, that's the mechanism for allowing people to. I, do, I don't think that's the only thing hindering it. So, you know, I, I agree. Bitcoin is a huge, huge part of the puzzle, but, uh, you know, I think you actually need to have more than that. You need to have people willing to do things like self-organization. Um, I don't think people are going to just, you know, switch to Bitcoin because they feel like it. They're going to switch because they're going to have reasons to do that. But here's, here's the subjectivity thing again, like. How do you measure whether a, pe a person has hyper Bitcoinized or not? Like, or how much of a Bitcoiner a person is? Even no coiners are Bitcoiners because they live in a world in which there are Bitcoiners. And uh, as long as you've heard the word, 
you are affected by it in, in some way, shape or form, but whether, whether you choose to agree on, on this rule set and play that game or not, that's entirely up to you. But, uh, I, I struggle with finding like an objective judge to say that, oh, this worked and this didn't work. That that's, that's not up for it. Like that's not up to any one of us to, to people are so quick to judge that this and, and look at empirical evidence and say that this country worked and this policy worked and this worked here. Who are you to say that it worked or not? You're looking at some arbitrary metrics that, that might give you some value short term. Yeah, I, I think the, the problem, the problem there is you're talking about worked or not worked. And, you know, to me, that's such a fuzzy meaningless term. Um, to me, the question is more, um, has a particular action performed, hit, uh, received a particular outcome or not? It's a binary yes or no kind of thing. You know, um, you know, I wanted, I'm a horrible authoritarian and I wanted to lock up 80% of the population in prison. Did I successfully lock up 80% of the population in prison or did I not? You know, it's always this, it is, it has to be that kind of binary. Otherwise you can't measure it. I agree. And so, oh, exactly. So, and, but, and, um, yeah, I was just going to say there, what I see, um, as useful aside from Bitcoin is things like, um, anarchist collectives and so on. So, you know, you look at, um, uh, some of these places like, um, you know, various free city movements or, um, those people who have just decided to, you know, opt out of the cities there in like, um, um, uh, Christiania in, uh, Denmark, you know, they, they just got part of Denmark as far as they're concerned. Um, uh, although as a, as an anecdote, anecdote for that one, when I visited Christiania earlier this year, they were getting raided by the police because the, the, the situation there was uh, people, I, I think what I heard was that a couple of people had, had been really violent and, uh, uh, yeah, so they needed the police to come yeah. and solve that issue. And it's been like that for 20 years. Like. Christiania worked for a while. I, I've been, I've been there many times and, and like seen it evolve from like, but it, it's been, you know, ga gangs have taken it over and, and yep. it's, uh, and the police come in every now and then, and it's really a part of Denmark and this, this, you know, utopian view that they had of it didn't really work. You, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm not saying, yeah, I, I'm not saying, yeah, but I'm not saying that that is you know, the perfect example of a solution. I'm saying things like that are the direction we need to be trying in, in order to actually make more progress. Um, uh, absolutely. But, but, but I wouldn't define that as a system. Uh, like what we were talking about systems here, now we're running back into semantics here, but the dis discussion when we say Bitcoin and things like it, you know, a bunch of anarchists uh, claiming that this is our land and we do what we want is it's not something like Bitcoin. It's, it's not a, a, a system or a, a, it's not a rule set. It's just a bunch of people doing something. It's, it's a different thing. Okay. There can be rules associated with it though. Um, so how would you view Rojava, um, in the Northeastern Syria, the autonomous, uh, libertarian socialist region? I, I know too little about it to, to have an opinion on it, I guess. Uh, can you give us the, the basics? Ben? Uh, okay, the very basics. So, um, Syria had a whole lot of shit happening over the last X number of years. Um, and I think it was about 20 years ago, um, the Northeastern area, which is largely Kurdish, basically said, uh, uh, you know, 
screw all of this uh, you know, being part of Syria. We don't associate with them. They're not, um, they're not who we are. Um, we want to have a um, secular, non-religious um, state based on libertarian socialist principles. Uh, and they essentially abdicated, um, abdicate themselves from Syria. So Syria still views them as part of Syria. Um, they view them as rebels, essentially. But for the last year, 20 years or so, there's been a bunch of cities who are largely self-governing, where they, uh, you know, a um, group of people who come together to make decisions, uh, you know, or to, uh, to decide on whether or not they agree on particular actions to take, um, you know, as a more, as a larger collective and so on. Um, and they've been relatively successful in it, in that for one of the poorest, most war-torn parts of the world, you know, um, you can't expect them to be doing great. They're being attacked on all sides by uh, basically everyone and nobody around them seems to like them. But, um, you know, they've been able to improve their quality of life significantly compared to the rest of war-torn's area. Interesting. I have to look into that a bit further. Uh, would, would you say that, that you said an interesting you know, a couple of words there, a, a secular state. Is there such a non-religious state? Is yeah. Can a state be non-religious in your mind? Yeah. Um, so more for the, the more classical definition of religion. Um, yes. So basically, um, if, to put it in context, all of these states around them are, um, Islamic states. They have something in their law, which is based on Islamic law. Um, they view Islam as a state religion. If you are not Islamic, you have perhaps, you know, less rights or things are managed for you differently in all of the They specifically reject that and say, your religion is irrelevant. Um, so yeah, perhaps the wording state there is also problematic, but it's always difficult to talk about an area like Rojava and say, you know, are they a state or are they not a state? Because from their perspective, you know, they are a, um, independent, uh, or, or a multiple set of independent groups who are coming together for common cause. Um, so, but you know, they tend to be referred to as a, some kind of state or pseudo state. Could you actually spell that? Because I'm not even sure if I, uh, I know. R-O-J-A-V-A. R-O-J-A-V-A. Okay. Thanks. And, uh, yeah, that'll help our, our listeners as well to, to go, uh, educate because honestly, I, I knew nothing about this. That's fascinating. It's a, it is a really fascinating part of world. And yeah, it's a, like I said, you know, it's, it's, it's war-torn. It's still, you know, so it's built itself out of serious that, you know, you can't expect too much from it, but, uh, you know, I think they're making good strides for, for the situation that they're in. Nice. We we have to look into that, Luke, and and uh, learn a little bit, a little bit more about Syria. We should anyway. I think. <laughs> uh, I agree. And in terms of the, the the goal, sounds fantastic. And I think probably in my view, the execution is the the key, right? And same with the Christiania example. It's kind of good intentions are only so far, only go so far as what they manage to achieve, and in some sense, good intentions can also lead to a lot of wasted effort. And I think that's the case with Christiania to some extent. It's a, it's a beautiful 
part of the city and uh, generates a lot of tourism and that's nice or but 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 maybe the goals of of this rojava is is more fundamental because to compare the conditions of copenhagen and hipsters in copenhagen is very different from people in well, hippies in copenhagen even they started in the 70s and like but if you ever go to copenhagen Make sure to stroll around in Christiania. Don't go to Pusher Street and like the center of Christiania, but walk around it. There are some really nice houses there uh, that the, these old hippies built back in the 70s. That are, it, it's a very nice looking area, part of it at least. Um, yeah. So from, from one thing to another, uh, an, another one of those you know chaotic ideas came to mind there. There's been a, a debate. Uh, lately about these ordinals have you heard of them the uh, the, they call it nfts on bitcoins and i think it was udi wertheimer that uh, managed to to put a jpeg into a bitcoin block that turned out to be four megabytes big and i'm i'm uh, i'm curious of your your opinions if you have any on on the on this whole is this an issue or or what because i i certainly have an opinion as usual but I'd love to hear your thoughts. So my general opinion is, um, I think it's kind of a stupid thing to do. I think it's, uh, you know, equally as pointless as any other kind of NFT. You're essentially just, uh, you know, putting an image somewhere, tagging it and then saying, okay, this thing has value because I say it does, but realistically it's a stupid picture stored there. From the Bitcoin perspective, however, thinking about, you know, what influence does it have on the chain and so on, I don't care. I think if you are paying for block space, then you know, you should be able to pay for that block space and store whatever you want in it. I think the actual economic value of transactions is long-term much higher. So they will get crowded out and become, you know, outpriced by real economic activity. Yeah, I totally agree. And like calling it, like calling this a technical attack is the social attack in my mind. There is a very weak social attack. And yeah. the social attack is calling Bitcoin flawed and saying that, look at this, Bitcoin has NFTs and stuff. That's, that's the social attack. And it's, it's going to be very costly in the long run to do that. And like what people say they are for or against is like, that doesn't matter to Bitcoin. What matters is what, what software you, you choose to, to use. And like, uh, it, it's, it's sort of like that. Uh, I, I, I don't agree with what you're saying, but I'm going to fight to the death for your right to say it. The, uh, yeah. um, Evelyn Beatrice Hall, I think it, and often misquoted to Voltaire, uh, which Giacomo Succo made it, uh, an excellent, uh, little change to in, in Riga. Like, I don't care what you pay, but I'm going to fight for your right for, uh, for, for, to the death for your right to pay it. Uh. So it's a bit of that thing going on. Like I, I don't ne necessarily like people like Udi putting JPEGs into the blockchain and making the blocks bigger, but I'm going to fight to the death for the right to to do it because it's not of my business. If, uh, if that's the longest chain, that's the longest chain. So yeah, yeah. have fun if, staying if somebody, bored. If somebody willing to pay, pay the appropriate fees to do so, then okay, they've paid for that block space and they're using it. And you know, if I want to, if I want that block space more, then I can pay more. Exactly. Uh, block space, or as I uh, like to call it, time space. 
time space. Yes. Yes. Uh, so time space is a scarce resource and it's uh, criminally underpriced at the moment because pe what people don't realize is that at any given moment, you have a exactly approximately 10 minutes to make a permanent tattoo into the world's uh, eighth wonder or 21st wonder. Uh, and you, which is the time chain that is more permanent than any tattoo can ever be. So, so, so you have this time to make a statement there and whether that is a monetary statement, you just make a transaction or whether you choose to incorporate some other data into the box, into the time chain, sorry, uh, it's up to you and you can still do it very cheaply. It will cost you, if you do it on a Sunday, late on a Sunday, it'll cost you less than a dollar to make a statement for the rest of humanity to study for thousands of years. Can I, can I go and uh, be the devil's advocate one more time here and bear in mind that my technical understanding of this is limited. I've done my best, but probably Ben, I think you've, you got a better technical handle on this. Definitely. But the main argument that I have with the ordinals is that they're using the so-called discounted space that I believe was added in SegWit. And they're also somehow making use of Taproot. And as the, the whole thing comes together, they're essentially paying a quarter of what it costs for the monetary transactions. And what you get is essentially data that is being charged for a lower rate. And my problem with that isn't actually that they're doing it or even that the SegWit and Taproot have enabled that. It's just more like, what if you as a node runner of Bitcoin or a person using Bitcoin doesn't want to download all these damn JPEGs or maybe more seriously, child porn, which I believe actually has already happened years ago too. So the to, to conclude this and, and pose the question is more like, what do you think of ideas where, uh, say, there is something to bring this stuff out of nodes so that it's just not taking up space on everyone's uh, node unless you're actually there for the ordinals, especially if it can be done in a way that preserves all the application level usages. Do, uh, yeah, combination, do you have any thoughts on that? And is there any, the, the one thought specifically about the, the discount, do you, do you have any feelings about that? Ben? Yeah. So uh, I think, I think calling it, a, uh, it is using the witness space, which is one quarter of the price of the rest. So that's you're correct. But this to, to make it short, clear to the listeners, that's a quarter of the price per byte. Yes. So, so it's, and a JPEG is still taking up a lot of space. So, so it's more expensive than just making a transaction to put a picture on the box. Exactly. exactly. And that's, that's pretty much what I was just about to say is it's, um, it's, it's wrong to think of it as being some kind of, you know, it's cheaper to put JPEGs on the chain than economic activity. It's, it's not because JPEGs are much larger than an economic transaction by far. Um, so sure, they're paying one quarter per byte compared to the economic activity, or at least some of the economic activity, because of course the witness data of the economic activity gets the same discount. Um, so you know, there's no, yeah, um, at least part of that is therefore the same. Um, 
but yeah, the, your, to talk about it as being cheaper is essentially to make an equivalence between a byte of economic activity and a byte of a JPEG. And I think that's a false equivalence. I don't think there's any real way that you can say those two things are equivalent. Um, so I don't care that they're getting this discount. I think economic activity will still outprice it eventually. I mean, economic activity is more valuable than storing JPEGs. That's a simple fact. So it doesn't matter if it's four times, eight times, whatever. Um, so does that, and as for the pruning part of it, actually that's relatively easy because it's witness data. Um, it's very easy to write some node software which says, oh look, this witness data wasn't useful witness data from my perspective, it's just a JPEG, so I'm going to drop it. You know, that's actually a fairly easy thing to do from a technical perspective. That's nice. Uh, yeah, so, so the, the technical part of this that I don't get is how, how, how uh, taproot affected affects your ability to this, if, if at all? It really doesn't. They just, um, it, it wasn't realized until after Taproot, Taproot, like, yeah, you can use Taproot to do it, but you actually could have done it without Taproot, so. Yeah, yeah, Be because like, uh, witness data, that's all in the SegWit upgrade. And, uh, yeah, uh, because this, this whole NFT thing and, you know, putting data on the time chain, it's been around for quite some time. Uh, I mean, my certificate from my uh, MOOC course in digital currencies back in 2016 is hashed into the blockchain. And in that course, we learned about these uh, artists that t tied, you know, their specific artwork to something on the blockchain. And also, like, why that is so pointless, because as, as soon as you ties any, anything of in the time chain to something in the physical world, the whole security model breaks down because of that tie. That will inevitably be the weakest link in the security. So you don't need the security of the, the blockchain. It's just pointless to anything but on-chain data. So, so, so the whole NFT thing, it's, it's all a big buzzword salad. And yeah, on the, the other it's chains it's like are just code same, salad. It's the exact same yeah. Oracle problem that you have with doing logistics on a chain. Essentially, you know, saying, okay, we're going to attack yeah. these technical goods. It's, it, it's meaningless, it's pointless, it serves no value purpose whatsoever. But people want to play with things and, you know, they're going to experiment and they're going to try stuff and they're going to find out it doesn't work. And that's okay as long as they're paying for the space. I don't care what they're paying to use it for. So, you know, they can do their the experiment, they can be wrong. They'll figure out they're wrong eventually. That's fine. Yeah, and and this is this is the price we have to pay for the Lightning Network, basically, because that's what Segwit, the big thing that Segwit enabled. Without Segwit, no no Lightning Network, and without the fork wars, no you know, no Segwit two X movement, and no none of all that. And the, the you know that that was my the confirmation I needed for for you know seeing that Bitcoin was really run by the users and not by some conglomerate. <laughs> I'm going to switch my camera over for a second to my iPhone. Uh, hopefully this will work. Sorry, here we go. This is the printer above me. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Segwit <laughs> from back in the day. I have fought. Oh yeah. Time. Yeah. You fought in the block size wars on yeah. the front lines. Yeah, I don't know. And, and, uh, de definitely that's a, that's a good little, um, clip we'll we'll definitely make sure that goes in there so um 
I I, th- I think we've kind of reached a kind of natural uh, spot here now, and we've we've covered a lot of topics, especially this political thing, which to really to really hammer home, I think both of you are saying the same thing just from different terminologies, which maybe that's a, maybe that's something we can uh, do another time is explore the origins of these differences in terminologies in a, in a way that kind of uh, we can flesh out a little bit of, of uh, the, the perspective difference, because I think there, that's, that's really what we're talking about is a perspective difference, but uh, a lot of very similar things. And then some technical discussion and some uh, interesting other stuff there. So I think this has been a, a really good one. So is, is there anything else uh, you'd like to, to mention? Before we wrap up, a quick reminder that the best way to support the show is to stream us some sats or send us a boost on a value for value app like Fountain. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like, subscribe, and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. And now, a little bit of information about Consensus Network and what Knut is up to lately. Hey Luke, can you tell our listeners a bit more about the Consensus Network, the platform that this show is on, and the publishing house that publishes my books? What is the Consensus Network, Luke? Thanks, Knut. The Consensus Network is a Bitcoin-only publisher and translator. In other words, translates Bitcoin books into all sorts of languages. Anyone who's interested in translating a book into their language can get in touch with the Consensus Network to help translate and spread the Bitcoin message throughout the world. We have lots of great examples here. Knut's books are some of the most popular on the site. Check out consensus.network or bitcoinbook.shop to see everything that Consensus has to offer. That's bitcoinbook.shop. Use the affiliate code FOOTPRINT for 10% off. Knut, can you tell us about how to get in touch with you and find out more about your stuff and the things that you're involved in these days? Yeah, sure, Luke. So I'm at Knut Svanum on Twitter. I also have a website, knutsvanum.com, where you can find all of my books. There's a whole bunch of books. These old two ones, Sovereignty Through Mathematics and Independence Reimagined, are being rehashed into one book that's coming out with a foreword by Prince Philip. I'm also making a wine. I'm not making this wine, but this is a wine bottle with a Bitcoin B on it that you can sign up for on my website. And you can also find all sorts of everything divided merch if you're interested in that. So uh, that's how you support me. When will I see you in real life next time, Ben? You're yeah, planning so to go I to any conference? Probably, yeah, you said you're going to be at uh, PTC Prague, right? Yes. And Gerald? Yeah, I'll, I'll be speaking there. Uh, my daughter will as well. So, yeah, sorry, we'll see each other there. Yeah, that, that'll be great. Do uh, you want to join us for the Pantera concert afterwards? Um, I'm with my daughter, so probably not a good idea. <laughs> She's a little, she'll be 12, but yeah. Ah, that's Pantera age, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, uh, uh, and I'm staying for a whole week in Prague. Uh, so uh, yeah, definitely see you there. I'm looking forward to 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 all the conversations we're gonna have there. Uh, I think that the the only thing where I find still like I think we have slightly different views uh, is about the uh, you know this whole uh, where we could go on for four more hours in personal in person is is about the uh trading away certainty for uncertainty in terms of you know an hourly wage or whatever we need to flesh that out lo- more i think but yeah i, I think actually that maybe a little bit in this book i think there is actually a little bit on that as well so yeah if you read that uh 
Fine. Yep. At least some of the libertarian socialist viewpoint on it. But uh, you know, I'm also, nice. of course, happy to talk to you about it. I'm, I'm, reading, I'm reading a phenomenal book at the moment called The, the Life and Adventures of Robinson Crusoe by the <laughs> Daniel Defoe. Okay. Uh, yep. so, so I'm rereading that. I haven't uh, touched that. Uh, I read it in Swedish for ages ago, but I'm listening to the original novel and it's perfect because I'm using it for my praxeology book. I'm going to incorporate Robinson and Friday there uh, and a lot of places. And I'm like trying to probably turning, turning it more into, uh, him being a main theme of the thing. And, uh, it's very well written and uh, yeah. A gripping novel. So if you haven't read Robinson Crusoe, that's the tip I of the day. Read Robinson no, Crusoe. No, no, I'm, I'm familiar with the basics of the story, like I think almost everyone is, but uh, I haven't actually yeah. read it. Nope. It's I'll, free I'll, on YouTube. <laughs> free on YouTube. Very good. I'll toss a book recommendation in while we're all doing that. The the one that I'm reading that actually, while you were talking about the origins of the, the USSR band, that, that I'm reading right now that, that talks a bit about that. And I'm not done, so I don't know how it ends. It's The White Pill by Michael Malice. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I just saw him on McCormick today, and uh, yeah, they talked about that book. I'm, yeah, I'm definitely going to download that one. Highly recommend it, because the bits that I've made it through so far basically cover exactly what you were talking about with the withering of the state. The, the anarchists were all excited about this revolution, but what got put in its place was this new state. And also some very good stuff about uh, why Lenin is uh, just as bad, if not even worse than Stalin and all that. So it's, uh, it's a good read. I recommend it. And I'm told it gets more optimistic. And uh, one other thing I'll kind of say about it is that it, it kind of floats up all of these government concepts in a way to say that they're stupid, to show how, how they can be abused and all this uh, basic stuff like passports and even yeah. the government having the 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 capability of uh, dividing rights and stuff. So I I highly recommend this one, and I'm I'm about twenty percent wow. done. So yeah, it's very good. Sounds, sounds absolutely like the kind of book I'd enjoy. So uh, you know, one of the things yeah. I was really enjoyed was reading as much as I can about the discussions between um, Karl Marx and Mikhail Bakunin, because Bakunin was you know kind of hey I'm on your side except what's all this status bullshit and. Then yeah. they like got these big arguments about it. Did, did it He's like the classical, um, real anarchist from those days. What about Bastiat? Did Marx and Bastiat ever have an argument? Not that I'm aware of. I would imagine they probably did, but yeah, I'm not that I'm aware of. So we worked on them too. <laughs> anyway, Luke, we should, we should try to get Michael Malice on. Uh, if my core make it, we can. I, uh, yeah, I love the guy. So, so, uh, yeah, Absolutely Michael, if, you, if you're listening to this for some odd reason, welcome anytime, reach out. <laughs> this will be your welcome, Michael. Uh, that's, that's his catchphrase from his podcast. His podcast is your welcome as in Y O U R welcome. And, and so he always says, this will be your welcome to his guest because it's a radical <laughs> error, but not. Just like his, right. his his first book is Dear Reader, as as in the play on Dear Leader from the North Korean, and uh, well, he's basically making a racist accent, ah. which is hilarious. So, anarchists, good times. 
Uh, but yeah, hey, Ben, this has been fantastic. Seriously, this is, this has been uh, one of my favorites that we've we've done so far. I've liked every single one, but I really enjoyed seeing the interplay of, of you two and uh, made me think a lot personally. So I uh, look forward to seeing you in Prague. And uh, yeah, there's no way you're, you're uh, by the sounds of it, you're not exactly close to Stuttgart, but uh, the Bitcoin I'm, I'm not, conference. I've been thinking about, been thinking about going over there, but I haven't actually decided yet, so... Mate, how, far, how far are you? Like, how, how many are you? So Stuttgart's stuck like driving all the way across Germany, which is sure it's only like five, maybe six hours drive. But yeah, yeah, that's a bit of a stretch. Well, you'll anyway, have we'll, new there if you want to, if you want yeah. to, to come. So, you know, and we'll be, be there for a couple of days. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Great. Well, hey, all and, right. Uh, I just, yeah, thanks again. Uh, can you tell us uh, where people can uh, connect with you or anything uh, you'd like to mention, direct people towards? Sure. So I guess um, yeah, the easiest way to find me in general is on uh, Twitter, just um, uh, at Ben underscore Deval. So just my name. Uh, uh, I, aside from my work at Swan Bitcoin, um, I actually also have my consultancy company, bitcoinerconsulting.com. Um, so if any of your listeners here need technical help. So I, I don't do, um, I don't do anything financially. I'm not going to tell you when to buy, when to sell that kind of rubbish, but if you want to implement Bitcoin in your business, if you, uh, you know, need Bitcoin advice of any kind, uh, yeah, bitcoinerconsulting.com. That's kind of my site. Great to hear Ben. It's been uh, a fascinating conversation as always with you and uh, looking for you, looking forward very much to meeting you in real life next time. So. Absolutely. Cheers. And open invitation to the show anytime to continue these conversations, by the way. Sounds good to me. Yep. All right. right. All right. Mm -hmm. Being the Freedom Footprint Show, thanks for listening.